0: Thanks for joining us on the American Masters podcast, where we pull never-before-heard interviews off the shelf and onto the airwaves. I'm your host, Michael Cantor, executive producer of the long-running PBS documentary series, American Masters. In this episode, singer-songwriter, poet, and visual artist Patti Smith is interviewed by filmmaker Timothy Greenfield Sanders. Smith is considered one of the key figures in New York City's punk rock movement of the 1970s, and her book, Just Kids, on her relationship with photographer Robert Mapplethorpe, won the National Book Award in 2010. Smith's blend of poetry and music has been cited as a key influence on artists far and wide, including Madonna, The Smiths, Sonic Youth, and REM, to name a few. In this candid interview, Smith paints a picture of New York in the 70s and reflects on the transient nature of its many scenes and communities. We begin with her talking about the influence of jazz in her work. I think
1: improvisation, um, I think our particular generation was very, um, uh, we were set up for that through jazz, I really believe. I think that um, in 1963, when I was a teenager, the biggest thing was Coltrane. My Favorite Things came out, and of course, there were Miles Davis, and there was various things happening, Roland Kirk. I often think that Jackson Pollock and Coltrane informed a certain facet of my generation. I mean, you have people like The Grateful Dead, um, Jimi Hendrix. Um, I I think that we were um, helped. We were primed for that through listening listening to Coltrane and I think it that I mean maybe not even intentionally but I I think it freed a lot of this or if not freed us gave us a new structure because the rock and roll song structure is great it's great to dance to its great release but we were really ready for a new structure we were really ready to open that structure and uh, I mean I I always give thanks to Coltrane and often write in the middle of an improvisation, he passes through my mind.
2: You're credited with bringing the music scene away from glam rock and kind of back to plain clothes, to the three basic chords, to sort of, can you paint a picture for me about the music scene of the 70s, CBGBs, uh, punk new waves, sort of all that, sort of to set the stage for what was going on?
1: I think it was a um, sort of like a nova, you know, or a convergence of things in the heavens. <laughs> and um, it just sort of converged at CBGBs, but I really think it was probably happening in various parts of the planet. The early 70s for me in terms of um, rock and roll was a very um, difficult time. I mean, we lost uh, some very strong forces, losing Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison and um, Janis Joplin, and then people like um, Bob Dylan or even the Rolling Stones, people that we were counting on, sort of retreating or regrouping. And the things that were becoming very prominent, at least for me, seemed very theatrical, very uh, limited, you know, in terms of lacking spiritual content. And having a lot to do with image, but not in the way that, you know, the image was very important in terms of like, Blonde on Blonde and the Velvet Underground, and the way Jimi Hendrix dressed, but it didn't, um, it wasn't at the sacrifice of spiritual content. And I really felt that 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 political and spiritual content was was losing out and we were being confronted with basically image. And um, I felt that was something worth fighting. And it, we were also experiencing probably like some of the death throes of folk music. And there there had to be some kind of something some some something had to shake things up you know within the underground area. something had to erupt um, i didn't have myself a lot of uh personal ambition. My ambition at the time was to uh I always felt like the the boy who puts his finger in the dike until the troops come or the people come to save the day i I really didn't feel that I had. Uh, I was qualified to save the day myself, but I really felt that I could hold things, <laughs> uh, do something, be of some avail until some new forces, you know, came about. And I think that uh, with my band, we accomplished that. I-, I think in CBGB's, it was really, it was a lot different than it is now. There were no real places to play. and. Um, uh, the the poetry scene did not really accept um the emergence of uh rock and roll and poetry they really resisted that um the small clubs were trying to hold on to the folk scene which they adored and um this little this uh, a bunch of uh um uh, torn-shirted renegades you know spouting poetry and uh, playing uh, out of tune fender guitars uh, wasn't really desired by uh, anyone. And it was really through the efforts of um, uh, Tom Verlaine and television to open up CBGBs. They found this place on the Bowery right near where William Burroughs lived, but no one was really coming. And I think that converging our two efforts, the efforts that um, at the time it was Lenny Kaye, Richard Soule and I, and combining the efforts of uh, television and our efforts, started, you know, bringing uh, a new energy there, which was happily taken over by new people, and today still stands, because the idea wasn't um, uh, to open this this area up for ourselves. The idea was to open it up and remind people that this is a this is a genre a very um, physical um, American genre with endless possibilities, and it belonged to um, whoever had the energy and the vision to uh, take a hold of it and make that coal into diamonds. It, it didn't belong to um, a marketing cruise and, uh, well... whoever. Anyway, that was sort of what it was like, <laughs> I guess.
2: What you also mentioned there was the poetry scene, and I know Jim Carroll um, got you involved for a moment or two at the St. Marks. Can you sort of give us a little picture of, the, of that scene? Well, I
1: didn't know that much about the poetry scene. Um, actually, I was brought into that through, uh, you know, Robert Maplethorpe was very much, um, very, was very interested in, in seeing me um, present my work to people. He was a very, a, a very uh, caring and ambitious person, not only for himself, but very ambitious for me. And he really um, spoke to Gerard Malanga, who was doing a poetry reading at St. Mark's in February of 71, and asked if I could read with him. And Gerard very generously let me, even though I had no track record at all, um, I think they thought it would be fun, you know? and. Uh, it was actually quite a night because um, I had asked Lenny K, who I'd recently uh, met, to work with me because I didn't want to um, just stand there and read poetry. I actually found the whole uh, poetry scene or the idea of like reading a, a lot of self-indulgent poems really boring. So I had Lenny interpret some of the po- poetry with an electric guitar. And it was um, it was quite a night. It was really um, completely unexpected. I mean, I can still, when I think of that night, I see so many people, of course, who aren't even with us anymore, but so many camps. It was a really great night because of the camps. We had Lenny Kay's camp, which crossed over into the rock rider camp and uh, the the Warhol camp to see Gerard Malanga, which um, I believe Andy was there, and Lou was there, and, or I imagine they were all there, but there were a lot of people from the Warhol camp. And um, I was very good friends with Sam Shepard, and he brought his camp, and and then there was the usual poetry scene camp. So it was quite an electric night, it was also the first time I had performed in front of people, and um, it was, great. I I discovered things about myself I didn't know. I had no idea what it would be like, but I was very, uh, I had a lot of nerve in those days anyway. And, uh, plus I had really great snakeskin boots, so I wasn't worried, but, um, I, I, I didn't think that it was really well received by the poetry community. Also truthfully in, in their defense, I was not at all uh, respectful to the poetry community because I didn't believe I had to be. I believed I w- what I would be respectful to is a great poet or great work, somebody like Gregory Corso, or work, the work of Gregory Corso, but I was not going to kowtale to um, a poetry system or a project or uh, a um, social situation. And... Um, I've always thought that was really important not to get involved in the social situation around work because scenes come and go and they're meant to come and go. I mean, I I was involved in some cool scenes and I'm glad they're gone. They're meant to be gone and new people, they develop the new scenes, but it's the work that endures. I mean, the Velvet Underground was, I'm sure I wasn't there, but looking at the pictures, It looks like a really incredible scene, as if the whole world was black and white then, you know, but the scene is gone, but the work endures.
2: I quickly little question about, you you kind of answered it before, but the thought of sort of getting radio play and the conflicts within record companies. Do you have any thoughts on that? I know you, your own work, certainly you've run up against this.
1: Well, I feel that I'm not always the one to ask about that because even though I've fought and fought against censorship and fought radio, and um, I still, there's a part of me also that believes it's very important that artists monitor themselves and develop a conscience in terms of what they give the people. I think everything the masses don't need, don't want, and are not going to be informed nor helped by all of art. I think that um, there's just certain things that are not for everyone. And I don't feel as I feel myself. I never, even though I fought for certain things or certain rights when I thought it was important, I wouldn't fight for certain of my work to go to the masses because I respect certain, well, I just, I respect their values. They might not be my values. And I wouldn't, I don't think what we need in America is a a race of artists. I believe that that artists, you know, um, have to maintain their strength outside of society and permeate it um, and help to elevate it or uh, even um, spiritually um, inspire society. But um, society must move on its own. And uh, I think even in these times, I would rather fight against censorship than have things so open that no one uh, respected one another, that we no longer had a conscience, that we no longer had um, uh, very uh, heightened ideals. I think these things are important. I think uh, because one, one spouts an obscenity doesn't make them an artist. It's a really simple statement, but only art is art. and. Um, we are, in ver- we are in danger at this point in time of like uh, just um, to make up for especially record companies and things to make up for what they blew or missed in the 70s or the 60s. They're ready to embrace anything that seems vaguely artistic or controversial in guise of art. And they're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. I mean, even a song again a song like, um, you know, a song like Heroin to me. It might in some ways glorify it, but it also um, offers uh, within that, you know, the price. And I think that uh, we have to, in all things we do, and in every new freedom we take, we have to remember that everything has a price. And. Um, if we don't remember that, we're just obliterate. But I don't know. Last what question, do I know? That, last question, that was
2: funny. Oh. <laughs> what, what is it about rock and roll where if you write in the first person, they think it's autobiographical, whereas if you're Shakespeare, you can write it and it
1: doesn't? I don't know, because I have had that difficulty throughout my own, um, my own time as a worker. I mean, I I find it amazing that uh, if you, if I, that people are immediately ready to categorize you if you shift gender in a song. Or, um, you know, I've often in in my work been the uh, uh, predator, uh, the rapist, the murderer, um, and uh, or the one admiring, you know, um, a, a beautiful female. And people immediately want to categorize each thing. And um, I think it's media. I think it's really media and just um, our tabloid consciousness. You know, I I was amazed when I was confronted with that. I used to say to people, well, when Hemingway created these really great women and spoke as them, like Brett or something, did that make him, you know, uh, a cross-dresser or something? It's like, um, we're, we're in a very uh, label conscious time, which I find really unfortunate. Um, artists never like to be labeled. I, I, I remember reading, even though I always found the term, you know, something like action painter, a very cool term. Jackson Pollock didn't wanna be called an action painter. you know. He was, an, he was an artist, you know, and um, I myself, I don't really like being called a, like a, a female vocalist, which I find, you know, absurd. Y- you know, it's like calling Jim Morrison a male vocalist, you know, or Picasso a white painter. People seem very, very label conscious, but we can take this into anything. It's one of my things that I find disturbing and sometimes humorous, but um, I really look forward to a time where I don't have to pick up a book and read that this person is a uh, uh, a gay pe- poet, uh, a, a black artist, uh, a female artist. You know, I think if if people's work is heightened to where it should be, if a person has a calling and really truly articulates that calling, there there needs to be no label no matter what that particular calling is
0: thanks for listening don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher for future episodes and visit the american masters website at pbs.org/americanmasters for digital archive gems past episodes and more you can also find american masters on facebook twitter instagram tumblr and youtube We'll be back in two weeks for our next episode of the American Masters podcast.